Darlings. Okay, let's... Darling, Jeremy Beasley. Yes. Okay. Come on, let's make so, a start, okay. Simon. Okay, then. <laughs> one day I'm going to get you to corpse. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, one day? <laughs> Listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast with me, Simon Sadler. Me, Becky Wright. And we're delighted to be in the head office at Equity, the Performers Union. With not, ec- not Actors Union, Performers Union. Performers Union. Performers and Creative Workers. And there is the voice of our special guest for this episode, Charlotte Bent. Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> the main focus in this podcast, uh, listeners, is about low pay and about organising disparate uh, groups, of, groups of workers, and that is very much your area of specialism and importance. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, not just low pay, but also kind of no pay. And the reason we're talking to Charlotte today is because there is an awful lot of stuff around like the gig economy and around the kind of low pay sector work. And I often feel that the, the thing that's missing in this is actually creative workers who are kind of the original atypical gig economy kind of worker Mm. who aren't thought of traditionally as being kind of low paid or not paid at all for the kind of work that they do and yet actually they are people think of your hollywood stars earning the big bucks but that's not true it's not the reality for the overwhelming majority of people in this profession um i mean one of the things that i was thinking about when you asked me to be on this podcast is what the reality of work is like for the average equity member. You know, we did a membership survey. We do membership surveys very regularly, but the one that I'm going to reference goes back to 2013, where we discovered that the most equity members earn less than £5,000 a year from their work in the creative industries. You know, so you cannot say that most people are the kind of, you know, Hollywood level, working regularly, paid regularly. Because even if people are working regularly, it doesn't always necessarily follow that they're being paid regularly. Or even paid at all. Or even paid at all, all. yeah. Yeah. And so is this kind of where the low pay, no pay kind of project kind of came from? Can you give us a little bit of background on on that? Sure. Um, So obviously, as a union, we have always done work on tackling no pay and low pay within the entertainment industry. We have always sought to get more employers at whatever level of the industry they operate to use collective agreements to negotiate with us to get decent terms and conditions of employment in place for the members and non-members that they employ. Um, But back in 2014, we created the dedicated low pay, no pay organiser post. And that was not the first time that we've done, you know, this kind of work because we've always, you know, always addressed issues of unpayment and low payment within the industry. But the first time we had a dedicated industrial organiser to help, you know, to help spearhead Mm. that work. Why did it take so long? I think it took so long because the priorities of the membership shifted and because there had to be a a sea change in the membership and in what the membership wanted to tackle in order for the union to create that post. So the post was created by a demand from the membership that actually this was a growing problem. Mm -hmm. There were growing issues in the, you know, in the entertainment industry. 
don't forget we're you know we're also talking about the knock-on effect of the financial crisis yeah. you know that hit yes, in 2008 indeed. and the kind of delayed knock-on effect of that in terms of funding for the arts and then therefore paying jobs for the arts um, and austerity, and, austerity well. yeah. and what that means for people in this profession when mm-hmm. you're in an environment where arts funding is not automatically seen as a priority that must be defended when funding bodies local councils and everybody else who would give money to the arts it suddenly has a lot more other pressures on their time so this post kind of came about as a sort of organic organic set of circumstances around the financial crisis and its knock-on effect on this industry and also the subsequent demand from the membership that okay yeah we know you're doing something about this the Mm -hmm. union has always sought to address issues of low and no pay but it's time to to step that up a gear yeah Yeah. and and i think this is in uh, interesting because aside from soaps Mm. and a few maybe long-term serials you don't like equity members aren't employed for long periods of times they are all self-employed well well um uh, genuinely self-employed no i mean you know the the conversations that a lot of other unions are having at the moment around bogus self-employment are very interesting from an equity perspective because bogus self-employment is something that equity members have been dealing with for a long time you know in the area that i organize in the the fringe low and no pay there are employers who have used self-employment status for years as a way to impl- to avoid paying people the minimum wage, as a way to avoid obligations right. around to, holiday pay and other statutory rights. Yeah, and to escape yeah. enforcement. And so mm. what will happen is people will get these contracts that say you are self-employed. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, they, they would meet all the criteria of being a worker or an employee because oh, they right, yeah, yeah. they have to turn up when they're told to turn up. They can't delegate themselves. And all the and other it's, kind and of it's things. And a particular yeah. period of time. And, I, and I, so yeah. I suppose in my head, I was thinking of people who would maybe get a commercial... And they're there for a day and mm. then they kind of go off again. But mm. actually, in the kind of work, that sort of fringe work, it is, I suppose, you know, like a three-month contract or whatever, isn't it? It's it can like... be, but I mean, a lot of the time it can be less than that. Runs on the fringe do not tend to be three months long. Runs in sectors that would sectors of our industry that would use a union contract might be. So the West End, for example, there are some very, very, very long-running productions on the West End. Mm. Um, again, in subsidised houses across the UK where we have collective agreements, there can be long-running shows. But for the fringe, you know, a three-week run right, is quite okay. would be quite a significant undertaking. So they don't tend to be that long. But it's still a defined period of time. It's still... You know, these people should be workers. There's still expectations and on the part of the employer that a genuinely self-employed person just wouldn't have to meet. And and I presume, actually, looking at the the UK theatre sector Mm. as a whole, there are far more fringe theatres than there are city centre ones or or high-profile ones. Or is that not the case? It's also, but it's also what is a theatrical space. And that's changing now that's as well, isn't it? Okay, because we're not like, just oh, my, talking about... Minds are going, okay, you are... Now, wow, what is she talking about? <laughs> no, 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 anywhere can be a theatrical space. Stick with me. Yeah, and, like, yeah. In fact, right now, this in fact, is right all now, one is this big performance, performance art. art. You know, is this a performance <laughs> art episode? You know, I'd like to think my job's a, a little... You know, I was that, not. I was but, actually thinking art. Yeah, I mean, if Unions 21 is performance art, then it's good performance art, let's put it that way. You know, the kind of question of what a theatrical space is has changed from when the union was established because isn't just the case that theatre only happens in set theatrical venues mm. now that are purpose-built. Mm. Theatre also happens in abandoned 
buildings. It also yeah. happens in car parks. It also happens in a whole load of other places. It, it also happens, happens in on secret the cinema. Really. It happens in secret cinema. It happens on the tube. It happens, you know, and the kind of the rise of immersive theatre mm. has meant that theatre isn't just in theatres anymore. I have to say, I have done immersive theatre and it was really cool. And it's, you could have a drink during it. It was great. Yeah, I mean, it's good <laughs> for the audience member, but... I know, I can imagine. I'm from an audience member point Yeah, from an audience member perspective, it's exciting. Yeah. And it's reached a kind of... You know, one of the things that our members who do immersive work quite frequently have said is that the crowds are different. Mm. You know, if you go to a West End theatre, um, you know, it's predominantly tourists or, you know, wealthy Londoners or whatever. But if you go to an immersive production somewhere on, you know, somewhere in East or South East London or whatever, then it's Londoners. It's, you know, it's yeah, local it's people and that kind of, and it's, and that demographic is quite different, but. You know, there are huge problems with sexual harassment in immersive theatre when people don't do do their risk assessments properly. You've got audience members moving around the the cast. Yeah, yeah, That can create situations of intense vulnerability. Now now I feel like I'm glad that you've told me after we've gone, because if we'd gone to it, I'd have spent the whole time time risk assessing the whole thing. And and, and every trade unionist I speak to about, you know, what immersive theatre can be like when it's not on a union contract, when you're treated as self-employed, when the employer therefore has no obligations towards you, yeah. you know, obviously the, the repeal of the protection for third party harassment is a thing for everybody. Yeah. But yeah. it's particularly true when you are self-employed or treated as such by an employer who doesn't want to pay you properly or treat you with dignity and respect at work. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I there are far too many equity members and non-members that I'm aware of who've had appalling treatment on immersive productions and the employer's just like, well, self-employed, aren't you? Yeah. Where's the responsibility? Where's yeah. the responsibility? And, and I suppose to sort of go back to the original question uh, around how did low pay, no pay come come about, mm. you, you're seeing almost like a, a coming together of all of these different threads. Yeah, all of these strands. Yeah, and, and the union sort of saying, well, actually, we need to spend some time focusing on this and looking at how we kind of... Deal it, deal yeah, but it's it. it's also about a bigger question that I think is relevant to a lot of other trade unions as well because, you know, you know this, Becky, from conversations that we've had before, but one of my criticisms of large sections of the union movement is that we put resources where they come from and not where they're needed. You know, we put the money into the sectors where the subs come from. We don't put the money into the sectors that are new and emerging and need some attention. But I think the view here was very much that, look, the industry is changing. The nature of work for our members is changing. Okay, they are working in these sectors, but actually this requires resource now. This requires, you know, a serious attempt to do some engagement with people who aren't in, um, you know, established houses that are using equity agreements or, you know, any other form of union agreement or whatever. But we have to adapt ourselves to what the industry looks like. We can't expect... Mm our old models to fit the new way of working and this has been an attempt by a very small union to make some conscious change to service and organize our members where they are not where we might want them to be yeah for sure i mean it's a real crossing of the rubicon yeah which 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 is actually not celebrated enough because no and uh, that's why we're here well that we are here to celebrate it's true (laughs) yay (laughs) but so okay so that's 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 the why that's 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 the why uh and and how it happened historically how does it work in practice what's the model that's used so how it works in practice is that we will seek to engage 
new producers of theatre, new venues uh, with the union in an attempt to either get them to join one of the theatrical management associations that we have collectively bargained agreements with or we will establish you know equity what are called house agreements individual agreements with each individual producer and we have a number of those in place across the country with you know smaller scale producers and particularly in London in the fringe sector we've done serious work of engaging with the major fringe venues across London to get them to use a union agreement and I think what Sorry, they played ball. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. we have we have some fantastic relationships with employers who understand that actually the work that they can produce is of a better quality, is healthier, is safer, and is more professional when it's done when people are treated with dignity. You know, our mm. one of the problems that I think anybody who works in an industry that people also do as a hobby have is that people think, oh well, you know, it's fun. And like, yeah, just yeah. because your job's fun doesn't mean you don't deserve to be paid for it. And yeah, I yeah. think the producers understand that that is a valid argument right. yeah. and that it's worth treating people properly. And I think what we've done, in some cases, not by, not, by no means all, but some of our agreements are just about getting people to respect statutory minima. So they will be paid for every hour they are at work. Mm. They will be entitled to holiday pay. They will be entitled to sick pay. There are grievance and disciplinary procedures. There are, you know, a whole host of other things that workers in other unions would take for, for granted, but is still something in this industry that we have to fight for. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, a lot of the agreements we have are just about honouring statutory minima, not treating people as self-employed when they're mm. transparently mm. not, and paying them at minimum wage for every hour they are at work. And if ever you needed an argument to say that there should be a suite of employment rights at a higher level than they are now from day one for any type of work... Totally. You've mm. just got it. Totally. Mm. You know. mm. But, it, I mean, you know, this is not to kind of underplay the significance of what we're doing because we are starting to win that political argument. You know, when the, fa when the campaign first started in earnest in 2014, it was hard. And there were even people within our own membership who were like, no, the art will suffer if you impose these kind of rigid structures on people wow. and the collective agreements and that kind of thing. It will hamper the it will hamper the creative process. We will not be able to do what we want to do. This is you know this is not a good idea. They were a tiny minority, but they existed, and it's important to acknowledge that. But and do you get employers who come back and say, well, if you, if you impose these constraints or if I agree to the, the these terms and conditions, I'll go out of business? Yeah, all the time. And, all and, the time. And and have any. But isn't that a bit? Hang on. To, to kind but it's of also the wrong way of looking about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you run a fringe venue and you want to have a decent reputation in the industry and you want to do good work, then part of that is being able to budget. And yeah. if you have a venue that has 30 seats in it and you want to do a production with a cast of 25 people in it, then of course you're never, ever, ever going to be able to pay people. And you have to think about scale and how these things work. You know, I mean, I've had some very interesting conversations with producers who have said that signing up to the agreement has had an impact on the work that they are able to do. Because if they have made the commitment to pay people national minimum wage or above for every hour they spend at work, then that impacts on the number of people it, you can employ. Yeah, it limits, you know, it, the limits, it limits their kind of uh, the scripts they might use or the kind yeah. of the way in which they would structure the company or, or yeah. I, I don't know if I'm but using the, the choice, right terms. You know, the, but the way that the way that producers who are, have positive relationships with us at the union and who are committed to using the agreement have expressed it is like 
I would rather pay people for what they do because from a from an employer perspective, if I'm paying you, I can expect more from you. Mm, if I'm treating you like sure. a worker, I can expect you to behave like a worker. So when I tell you that rehearsal starts at 11 a.m., you cannot swan in at two. Indeed. If, yeah, you know, if I'm yeah. paying you for all the time you're at work, I am treating you like a professional. Let's all be professional about it. And it has, you know, one of the things that one of our... Um, fringe agreements employers has said to me is that his uh, using a union agreement has elevated the quality of what they produce because it's enabled not only our members and non-members who are working on that agreement to feel professional mm. but it's made him feel more professional they have to manage in a professional he way. has to manage in yeah. a professional way yeah, yeah, yeah. and that that has a real impact on how you know on other kinds of things at work as well because if you're behaving like a pro- professional you are far less likely to experience bullying and harassment. Yeah. You yeah. are far less likely to experience other problems at work that come when people are doing sort of, you know, vague being bits a bit here, vague bits there, being a bit footloose well, with people it. Are yeah. not, people are not valued. Yeah, it's exactly. It's the old argument about it. Labour is too cheap, it becomes disposable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it begins that kind of vicious cycle of how everybody sees themselves as well, because yes. then people see themselves as disposable. Yeah, and, uh, you know, our, our members are professionals. Our members deserve to be paid for the work they do. Our members deserve more than national minimum wage for the work that they do. But we are winning that fight with people about paying national minimum wage and honouring statutory minima and this is a process and not an event. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't win national minimum wage on a couple of fringe agreements and then pat ourselves on the back and say that everything's fine now. Job's done. The next step is to work with employers to get them to pay London living wage or to get them to join one of the management associations that we have collectively bargained agreements with mm. so that, you know, they can benefit from, you know, being in a, a part of a management association and so, frankly, that the terms and conditions improve and the wages go up. Yeah. You know, it's, this is a journey, yeah, and not that, a kind of one-off, right, bang, you're on agreement, we don't need to talk to you ever again. But I think that's that's actually, I think, a, another really important point to kind of talk about is that this has been going on since 2014. It's now 2018. Mm. It's an ongoing project. Mm. It's not like, here, we've done this, and that's it. Off we go. It's because it is a longer-term project about changing the culture and views within an industry do you know what i mean like it's about it's about what the value of this work is and yeah. it's about the professionalism and, of our members and that's why and you're like, not going to change it overnight you're not going to change it overnight but you know this is why in the kind of first part i think it's like section two i can't remember off the top of my head of the agreement that the employer signs when they sign up to a fringe agreement it says it is recognized that this is a first step towards better terms and conditions you know before we even go into what the pay is going to be get the name of the employer and the name of the relevant union official on the dotted line and then the next thing is all right good you've done this but this is a first step. And, yeah. you know, since 2014, when the Professionally Made, Professionally Paid campaign was launched, the work that we've done to engage with employers, to get them to use union agreements, the action that we've taken to help people enforce their statutory rights when they're on jobs that aren't using union agreements to, you know, recoup mm-hmm. holiday and pay entitlement, to receive the national minimum wage for what they've done, has put three million quid in our members' and non-members' pockets. And like, this is this is not to be sniffed at. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But also, there's still more to do. You yeah. know, there are still producers out there who will who are making a ton of money from the work that they do, who pay people £50 a week and a sandwich for an eight-week run. Now, you cannot live in that. You cannot live on that unless you have access to private wealth. Yeah, yeah. And this is where the kind of knock-on effect on, you know, socioeconomic status comes in, because... 
if you're being asked to work for free, you can't do it unless Bank of Mum and Dad is going to subsidise you yeah. for a couple of months in the mm, rehearsal mm, period mm, in the run. Mm, Therefore, mm. that makes the entertainment industry and access to careers in the entertainment industry about not just how talented you are and not just whether or not you have the skills required to do the job, but also about access to wealth. And our position as a union has always been that whether or not you can work in the entertainment industry needs to be about your professional skills, not about your ability to Absolutely pay your not. way through. Because then you then have a further knock-on in, in the sense then it becomes something that is not something that's seen as accessible to people who don't have those sort of independent means. Yeah. And, and, then, and then you get to a situation quite quickly that you have now where creative art, the creative industries are being squeezed out of school curriculum. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, that's so, why we are, we're involved in the Back for the Future campaign to sort of you know, try and fight for the position of creative subjects on um, on the on the national curriculum. But I mean, I think what we have always been clear of is that we are agitating and organising for a better economic position for the arts. But we also have to fight to defend the arts' cultural value, which, when you're talking yeah. to you know decision makers at the moment in terms of government and that kind of thing, it can be harder for them to understand that argument but you know it's it it's just, an important one yeah and it is just bizarre given the the economic importance to the country that art brings in in terms of gdp i mean it's a huge part of of yeah. the uk economy well, all, way back when british are coming what was that chariots of fire was the was the British are coming. Oh, yeah, with the yeah. Oscars. Oscars. Yeah, it's Sean and I looking at Simon like, who? Where? Who, what? what? That was close. Show, show my own <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, but I immediately went to, that was that was the Empire, Simon. I mean, what were yeah, you I mean, I was a bit like, sorry, where are we going with this? Like, <laughs> no, no. Do you and have then I figured out you were talking yeah, about a film. A film, yes. Yes, sisters, a film. <laughs> did one no, there. But it, I was a bit it, like... Where's this guy going? <laughs> <laughs> Do we need to but, have a conversation? But the, the value. The, <laughs> yeah, the value yeah. of it. And, and the pride, the national pride that's associated with, yeah, you know, exactly. when a British film wins the Oscar or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but it is, you know, in, increasingly you're seeing uh, companies coming to the UK to work because of where it's positioned. Mm. The fact that, I mean, we had a Brexit event last year, which we had uh, an equity member talk about the sort of stuff she does, a lot of voiceover work and yeah. a lot of... Uh, Yes, yeah. she's great. Um, she had loads of different voices. It was hilarious. Uh, that podcast, by the way, about that Brexit event is still available. Oh, yeah. On your podcast yeah, listen to it. Laurence so. Bavard is um, one of our activists. She's, she's a great woman. Yeah, she's a really, was... really great advocate for the union. A exactly, yeah. Really great advocate for kind of, and, but also really good at explaining the 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 role that this country has somehow found itself in in terms mm. of the the kind of arts I industry especially related to TV and sort of film because because mm. members here non members here can do the accents they can well, but you know yeah, yeah. they can do the accents they can go to Europe and work e more easily than some other you know American actors they, there's a whole um, there's a whole place that we're in for geopolitical reasons, but, but we're there, right? Mm. So the fact that we don't spend a lot of time investing in our arts and trying to make that as accessible so that the, the, the best people can, can do that job and we've got that kind of pride in it, it's just, to me, it's quite bizarre. But I, And I also think, sort of going back to one of my earlier points, when we talk about the gig economy, when we talk about low pay, 
people do forget the arts within that. You yeah, know, they, totally. they completely, they, they think of it. And I totally get why, and I'm not bashing it. Like, you know, at the moment we talk about Deliveroo and, and Uber, right? Mm. And, and yeah. And then I keep sort of thinking, yeah, but this is like equity members. Then... Yeah, Before, but the thing, you see, the and thing now, is, is, and in the future, no? yeah, it is. This this is the way our members have worked for well longer than I've been alive, and considerably longer than that. But you know, this is one of the things that I think, as a movement, we have to get better at because, you know, I will have conversations with union officials, friends of mine from other trade unions, and they sort of bandy around. Yeah, well, you know, at the moment we're talking about precarious work and bogus self-employment. And then you, you know, you drop in the fact that unions like ourselves, like the Writers Guild, like the Musicians Union, like Vectu, you know, and other creative and industry NJ. workers in the NUJ um, have been dealing with that kind of oh, thing for decades. And people go, oh, oh, didn't know, didn't know. And that's, but it's it's not that they didn't know, it's that they hadn't considered it. Yeah, you know, because, because of what, when we talk about union organising, what we really talk about is unionising that works for people in geographically fixed, permanent or semi-permanent employment that lasts longer for three weeks at a time. You know, and the, and the kind of examples that we tend to look at and learn from are those that involve workers that are in a form of precarious work, but not the same form of precarious work as our members are in mm -hmm. and have been in for decades and will continue to be in for decades. Those organising models that we have fit a particular type of precarious work mm. and for those of us who sit not exclusively and not completely but in some way outside of that model are sometimes left out of that conversation and i think that there are things that we can all learn from each other I agree. Yeah. and we need to get better at having these conversations about what's working what's not what we've done that's been really successful what mm. other unions have done that's been really successful and just be a bit more open about skill sharing because we kind of have to. Well, especially as, as the circumstances in which equities members and potential members find themselves are becoming increasingly the norm. Yeah. If not the norm, they're certainly yeah, coming yeah. up from the periphery into the mainstream in, yeah. in terms of geographically disparate, small workplaces, poor, con poor terms of conditions, sort of erratic yeah. Uh, spells of being yeah. engaged, engaged and not engaged. So that, there's, there are huge learning points for the movement. They are, but here's where I would say almost where it is different for equity is that there is some semblance in a predominantly private sector kind of arena mm. of employers organizations that employers sign up yeah, to definitely. and there is a collective agreement with with yeah, them that is true. broadly adhered to yeah would you say because i mean we you know the you know the west end for example mm. there is a management association and the employers are organised in that way. Yeah. You know, so it's not just about our organisation, it is also about employer organisation because if we had to go round and negotiate with each individual theatre, we could do it, but it'd be a lot harder. Yeah. But the fact is, if you want to, you know, if you want to join the management association, you use the collective agreement and that makes, it means we negotiate with one body instead of however many West End theatres there are. It makes things easier. But in my sector, in the Fringe, that's exactly what we have to do because there aren't any management associations for Fringe theatre. And there isn't as much of an appetite for it. No. So we, you know, we are kind of, we're going from pub theatre to pub theatre to pub theatre to production company that does site-specific stuff. Because we have to. Because this is where our members work. And people need to understand that the union is there wherever they are 
we still want to work with them and still want to get them on union agreements. And do you find that once you, you've invested the energy and the, and the time and you've got them signed up, do you win the, re the retention challenge as well? Do they stay members in the main? I mean, we have, we have density levels that a lot of other unions you know, would, would be quite envious of, I think, particularly in our more organised sectors like the West End. You know, we, we have very, very good density and we are getting better density within fringe theatre. Now, one of the knock-on effects as well is that shortly after we created the professionally made, professionally paid organiser job, we also created a dedicated student organiser job, which is the one I did um, at Equity before I went away for 18 months and then came back. And what's been really nice about being back at the union and doing the cast visits on the fringe is that I recognise people that I recruited when they were students. Oh, because great. we that went is, into the drama great. schools yeah. to go yeah. and say, look, your union is important. This is what we do. Yeah. This is why you join. This is, all, you know, all the benefits that they get from membership, yeah. whether it's the insurance mm -hmm. or the advice or whatever. But then also the idea about having that collective stake in the fact that the industry can be better. So I have done, you know, I've done a number of cast visits now on fringe theatres where people who graduated a year or so ago remember me from when I went in to talk to them in their third year about why trade unions are important and got them to join equity. And it's wonderful, but it shows that we... It shows that we're getting something right For sure. because we're For getting sure. them in the we're getting them in the institutions, developing them as students, giving them the services that they need when they're students in order to help them develop those careers. Mm -hmm. And then when they're on the when they graduate and they're popping up in fringe theatres, there they are ripe for the organising because they already know what unions are they already understand why the union is important and they already know what collective bargaining is because we told them when they were students sounds like a success to me <laughs> like... charlotte thank you very much indeed for not a problem time thanks and, for having and, me and thank you yes. very much for 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 sharing with us your your, your insights so the campaign is professionally made professionally paid yeah professionally um, made professionally paid if you haven't come across charlotte yet and you are a, a performer and you like what you hear and you think I'm not a member, I need to join. The website is? Uh, www.equity.org.uk and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and all kinds of other social media as well. That's brilliant. So if you've got any questions about what we do at Unions 21, if you want to get involved in our campaigns, our activities, our collective uh, voice campaign particularly, you can... Head over to our website. Which is? <laughs> www.unions21.org.uk Marvellous. Look how <laughs> seamless that was. And as ever, listeners, we'd love you to take part in the conversation with us. We want to know what you like, what you don't like, what you think we should cover, what you think we shouldn't cover. You can email us at info at unions21.org.uk And please don't be afraid to share this podcast with your friends and family. Think of it as an early Christmas present for them. Very early oh, Christmas present. And you need to rate us, please, uh, listeners, on the podcasting platform of your choice yeah. because that's really important for us busting the algorithms and getting our message out getting the union message out even further yes so that's about it for this episode we'll be back in a couple of weeks when we'll be concentrating to develop the theme on low pay i will be interviewing the low pay commissioners from the trade union side who happen to include which includes our very own simon mr Sapper. simon sapper <laughs> i might get charlotte to come in and be yeah i'm gonna come and talk to you about government policy and low wage and well, what we need in the entertainment industry well, because we need some action on that simon well, it, well it, we, 
we've just had this because we've just Simon's trailing it now. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Simon's those, like, these women those... are attacking me. <laughs> not. not what I signed up for. Not at all. All not those at policy all. geeks are like, come on, Simon, tell us what we're like. <laughs> <laughs> you, see, you see, listeners, by the time we have our next podcast, the budget will have been and gone, and we yeah. will know what we will know what the Chancellor thinks of the recommendations that the Low Pay Commission has made to him about the rates for the national minimum wage and the national living wage. So uh, it's not just me. Of course, it's not just me. <laughs> no, well, it's also it's, Kay, Kay Carberry and Kate Bell. Who are seriously heavyweight intellectual people. Yes. Uh, and the, I think the discussion will be quite informing. So I like that. So I was like some really heavyweight intellectual people and me and Becky. <laughs> <laughs> Draw your own conclusions. <laughs> Draw your own conclusions. Hey ho. Anyway, listeners, <laughs> until the next time, this is me, Simon Sapper. Me, Becky Wright. And me, Charlotte Benz. Saying thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>